Good morning, church. Great to see you today. We we're actually live streaming this morning, so you are seeing us live from the worship center here on campus. And of course, we'll be having live services here at 10 o'clock and 11:30 this morning. And thank you for your support and prayers around that. As Pastor Glenn was mentioning, we we have a divided country in these days, and it's been very difficult to to navigate. Could I just uh, um, reminisce with you about a moment that happened uh, in the post-George Floyd event, which was so horrific and terrible. One young African-American woman simply said, when I saw all the air go out of George Floyd, I felt all the patience go out of me. I thought that just summarized well the kind of emotion and kind of pain, sense of loss that all of us have been feeling. So today I want to talk about bridging divides and bridging the racial divide. Now let me just say, we're not going to cure the problem of race in America uh, easily. And this sermon is just a, a step along the journey. And if you, uh, if you think that solving the racial problem in America is uh, three easy steps then you're probably an ideologue or you're naive or something in between or both because it is a massively complex issue and no one has a good handle on it. And so it's best for us as the people of faith to refer to the scriptures and to try to understand best God's design for us in this category. So I've chosen as our text this morning from the book of Galatians chapter 3. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I'm going to read for us verses 26 through 29. Of course, we'll project these words. So hear God's word. So in Christ Jesus, in him, you are all children of God through faith. So Jesus is the uniting point. Jesus and our faith in him is what brings us into the family of God and making us all children of God. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now note, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise." I think you get the message. May God bless us as we hear his word today. Thank you so much. Well, it was quite a few years ago when it used to be quite acceptable to tell ethnic jokes. Remember those days? It's been a while. I remember the most popular ones. There were Polish jokes, for example. By the way, I give you permission to laugh. I know this is a, this is a serious subject, but we're starting with some one-liners. And you have my permission to laugh. It's okay. Trust me. I won't, I won't take you past the line. But let me, let me just encourage you to find some humor here. For example, there were Polish jokes. Polak goes into a restaurant, orders a pizza because he's hungry. When it's delivered to his table, the waiter says, do you want me to slice it into four or eight pieces? Polak pauses and says, you better make it four. I'd never be able to finish eight. <laughs> yeah. Remember those? It's okay. Uh, how many Polaks does it take to pop popcorn? The answer is four. One to hold the pot, three to shake the stove. But I'm bump, right? 
Now, folks began to think, well, you know, maybe that's not such a good idea, you know, not politically correct. Then it became dumb blonde jokes. Remember those? Why doesn't management give blondes coffee breaks? Because it takes too long to retrain them. Why do blondes have TGIF written across their shoes? To remind them that toes go in first. Very helpful. What do you call a brunette standing between two blondes? An interpreter. Of course. People are moaning. They're not laughing. Well, after that, the blonde said, no more of that. So they started dumb men jokes. Uh, For example, why are all dumb blonde jokes one-liners? So men can understand them. Of course. What is the difference between a man and E.T.? You remember the iconic movie, E.T., the extraterrestrial? What is the difference between a man and E.T.? E.T. phoned home. Yeah. What is the best way to force a man to do his sit-ups? It's a very important question. Put the remote control between his toes. I've got more, but we might run out of time, of course. Now, I'm part Dutch. Uh, The name Paris, you may think, is a French name, but it's not. It's actually a derivative from the English culture. So it's English and part Dutch. I'm part Dutch, uh, and I like Dutch jokes. A Dutch guy uses an outhouse, accidentally drops a dime down there. He really wants that dime, so he signs a flashlight down there, and, oh, is it worth it for a dime? So he throws a quarter down there and then goes after it. I mean, for 35 cents, it's a no-brainer. That one is funny. Now, I don't mind a good ethnic joke, and then I wonder why it is that I'm so good-natured about a good ribbing and why other people go ballistic and want to fight or riot when they are called disparaging words. I say, well, maybe I know the difference. Maybe it's one thing to be kidded about being frugal or thrifty, which is what Dutch jokes are about, and maybe it's another thing to hear emotionally charged words used as weapons of disdain and disgust and despair. Knowing that these words are intended to devalue and demean and dehumanize people. Maybe it's these kinds of words and actions that can lead to a soul damage inside of people, undermining their intrinsic worth as human beings. Maybe you have to experience personally this kind of attack to really understand it. Mary Edelman is a black author and she writes about soul damage. She writes about a kind of internal pain and hurt that doesn't seem to end. She writes, and I quote, It is utterly exhausting to be black in America. There is no respite nor escape from your badge of color. It's exhausting to be a black student on a white campus or a black employee in a white institution. Or some people automatically assume that you're not as smart as whites. There's that constant burden to prove that you are as smart or as honest or as interesting or as motivated as any other person in the place. And it just tires you out after a while. Perhaps she's onto something here. Maybe she understands soul damage that comes from racism. Some of us in this church, Union Chapel, we understand this kind of damage because we've experienced it. Some of us of color in particular understand this emotion, this experience, because of your life experience. And then there are others of us in our church, and I can just say this with some confidence, that we don't have a clue. I mean, we don't get it. We don't understand it. We can't grasp what it is like to be discriminated against because we've never really experienced it. 
Now, maybe you're disagreeing with me and pushing back against uh, my theory. Let me try to illustrate this way. Andrew Hackard describes a certain exercise a college professor does with his incoming class of white college students each year. As they are new to the class at the beginning of the semester, he says to them, suppose an official comes to your door tonight and announces that there has been a terrible mistake, that you were supposed to have been raised black, but you weren't. But now that situation has got to be rectified. So tonight, at midnight, you're going to turn into a black person and you're going to have to, 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 to embrace all of the same inner qualities and characteristics that you have right now, but for the rest of your life, you're going to be black. One last thing. The company that made the mistake is willing to offer compensatory damages for this little oversight. So whatever you think is appropriate in terms of compensatory damages will be fine. Just name your price. Well, the class is dismissed and given these 24 hours to decide whether or not compensatory damages would be required. Then the class returns, and guess what? After 24 hours of thought, these non-biased, non-discriminatory, open-minded white students, on the average, ask for a million dollars a year, compensatory damages for having to live the rest of their lives as blacks. After which the professor calmly says, I rest my case. See, if the students ask for nothing, then it could be assumed that skin color really isn't an issue in the new millennium here in the United States any longer, but the results of this exercise suggest different. And I wonder, what were you thinking? You know and I know that skin color is an issue. It's been an issue throughout history and throughout the world. Now, before I go any further on this subject, uh, I know that there is some discomfort that comes from this conversation uh, and so I, I want to just give some perspective before I go further. I want you to know that personally, I love America. I think America is the greatest nation in the history of the world. It is an amazing place. The more you travel internationally, the more perspective it gives you on just how wonderful it is in America. It's a land of opportunity. So I am not in any way in this message, attempting to do that American bashing thing that is so popular in our world today. In some sectors of our culture, most state-funded universities in this, in this nation, I love America. I think that the Constitution of the United States is the most amazing document that God's ever enabled people who govern to come up with. And the basic tenets of the Constitution, that all men are created equal, that every individual is a person of sacred worth, endowed by their creator with inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to reach their full potential. I mean, the, the foundations of the Constitution of the United States just seem like God's best plan and design for the world. And so I believe this is a great, great place and a great country and a land of opportunity. Now, I understand we have flaws, we have sins, we have, we have deep scars we have divisions in our culture, and the playing field is not level for everyone, not yet. And we have much work to do, but this is a land of opportunity. And it doesn't matter if you're red, yellow, black, or white. There's never been a place in the world in any time where there's been so much opportunity. And if you don't agree with that, then I have Exhibit A. Exhibit A is Barack Obama. Barack Obama is a two-term president of the United States, a person from a minority discriminated class of people in our culture was elected president, becoming the most powerful man on the face of the earth 
for two terms. And here's my challenge to you. Name another place anywhere in the world where that would be possible. Name another place anywhere in the world at any time in history where that would be possible. It'd be a tough assignment. I rest my case. This is a great place. Now, having said that, whether we want to admit it or not, our country planted its major cities on land that first had to be depopulated by its native inhabitants. It's not a political statement. It's a fact. Not only did the early colonists systematically annihilate hundreds of thousands of American Indians through guns and cannons, bombs, you know, conventional ways, but they also introduced diseases intentionally to wipe out entire populations of Native Americans. At one point, there was, there was a, a worldview that, was, uh, that, was, that became popular called Manifest Destiny, that somehow it was, the, it was the destiny of white Europeans to conquer this continent. Okay. Some of our forefathers didn't stop there. In order to kickstart the economy of our young, struggling nation, we forcibly kidnapped about 10 million Africans from the Ivory Coast region of the continent of Africa. Think about that number, 10 million. We went over there and simply broke up families, chained people, walked them sometimes hundreds of miles to the coast where they were shipped across the Atlantic Ocean, a four-month journey. Several million perished of disease and starvation in the holds of these slave ships, their bodies just cast over the side for bait. Once they landed on our shores, then they were auctioned off to the highest bidder. Hard to hear this, isn't it? When slave owners wanted their slaves to work a little harder, they would beat them. They would starve them. They, were, they would maim them, make them work with a ball and chain. If the slaves were obstinate enough, they'd simply be killed. When slave owners wanted sexual favors, they regularly abused and raped the wives and daughters of their slaves, sometimes right in front of their own fathers. Now, what I'm describing is actually true, and what I'm describing, of course, is inhumane. It's horrible. It's painful to even to hear it, let alone to imagine participating in it. But in order to justify this inhumane treatment, what our early forefathers did was simply deny the humanity of slaves. So these slaves were referred to as subhuman, bodies without souls. So if, if you're dealing with a body without a soul, you can do whatever you feel like. And sadly, most pastors and Christian leaders not only kept silent throughout this era, but quite routinely Christian people bought and sold slaves like everyone else. It was not uncommon for pastors to own and trade slaves. So this unthinkable evil actually lasted until about 1865 when the Emancipation Proclamation was issued immediately following the Civil War. And so this systematic oppression of African Americans continued not only for the 400 years of slavery, but another 100 years after that and to this day. As recently as 1960, that's just 60 years ago, Woolworth's department store refused to serve blacks at their lunch counters. Public drinking fountains were designated whites or blacks. And we all know that if a white person got on a public bus, all of the blacks had to move to the back of the bus. This, of course, began to change with Rosa Parks. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. from 1967, this was the year before he was assassinated, said, of all the good things in life that black a black person has about one half of that of a white person. And with regard to the bad things in life, he has about twice that of, blacks, or of whites. So half of all blacks live in substandard housing to this day. Blacks have half the income of whites. Twice as many are unemployed. The rate of infant mortality among blacks is double that of whites. 
In elementary schools, blacks lag one to three years behind whites. The medium income of an African-American is about 62% of that of a white person. The median net worth of blacks is about 8% of the median net worth of whites. Unemployment is nearly twice the amount. Infant mortality is still twice the rate. African-American mothers are still four times more likely to die in childbirth than white mothers, largely because of the absence of prenatal care. Most whites today are out of touch with the ongoing structural inequalities that still remain in American society. There, I said it. Therefore, most whites don't think there's a race problem today. They think all of those inequalities ended with the civil rights legislation of the 1960s, and so most whites feel the playing field has been leveled, that equal opportunity has been made available to everybody. Most whites think minorities should just buck it up, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, and stop complaining. On the other hand, most blacks live with the daily residual effect of 400 years of unthinkable oppression from whites. Most blacks are keenly aware of the ongoing system, systemic inequalities that exist. And most blacks have little enthusiasm for accepting the status quo. And now we've seen that taken to the streets. So whites think the only problem is blacks are not trying, and blacks say whites don't get it. They think the playing field is level. So where, where does that leave us? It leaves us back to the worldview that those of us who are followers of Christ want to embrace. Back to Galatians 3, our text today. I want to put verse 28 on the screen for you. It says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now I'm about to make a statement, and after this statement is where an amen goes in this sermon. So get ready. Are you ready? The church is the one place in all the world where all these superficial delineations are left at the door. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, educated or uneducated, successful or not so successful, athletic or clumsy, black or white, man or woman, old or young, in the church, we are family. Amen. Amen and amen. So let's answer some basic questions today. Again, we're not going to solve the problem. But let's at least start building the bridge, if we can, across this divide. These three basic questions. What is racism? What causes it? And what can we do about it? Here's number one. What is it? Good question. Here's a broad definition. Let me put it on the screen. It is negative passion towards groups of people. Prejudice or prejudging people is arriving at conclusions without sufficient information about everybody. It's imputing to an entire group of people the negative characteristics of a few. There's a broad definition. And all of us do it. You do it. I do it. All God's children do it. We get caught up in it. It's so easy to have a negative experience with a single member of a particular race or ethnicity and project that bias on an entire group. It can happen in, in school with a classmate. It can happen with a waiter in a restaurant. It can happen with a local physician in the emergency room. It's easy to do. And all of us are caught up in it. So that's what it is. And so what causes it? Very important question. What are the underlying causes of racism? Well, as painful as it is for some of us to admit, here's the first, here's the first line of causation. It's parents, families, and teachers. Influencers in our lives when we were young. 
as painful as it is, parents are the primary. Parents play the single greatest role in creating biased attitudes in the lives of their children. Parents, to a large extent, determine whether their kids are going to be bigots or bridge builders in their lives. The research all shows that prejudice, mindsets, and attitudes are formed very early on. Careless parents can turn their children into mean-spirited bigots by the time they're five years old. But careful parents can go out of their way to instill an appreciation in their kids for God's obvious plan for racial diversity in the human race. Diversity seen as a gift from God, from the loving hand of God. I mean, there's so much diversity in the world, so many shades, so, so, many, so many differences. God must find great joy in all of that. I did some reflection on this subject from my own past, my own childhood. My sixth grade teacher, his name was Mr. Morgan. He's uh, long gone. And this is from 1967. Now, now reference that date. This is, again, the year before Dr. King was assassinated. So 1967, and the civil rights movement was in, in full, uh, full procession, and it was, it was front and center in social circles at the day. I can recall only two statements that my sixth grade teacher, Mr. Morgan, who was also my sixth grade basketball coach, two statements that he made. One was after a county tournament, I'm 12 years old, and we had played a game, and, and he was very complimentary of me and my teammates after that game. And, and I remember it because it made me feel so warm. The second thing I remember my sixth grade teacher saying, I can remember not only, not only what he said, I can visualize the room. It was so impactful. It, it lingered with me, and probably to this day. I can describe what he was wearing. I can describe where he was standing in the room. I can describe to you where I was sitting in the room. And then remember 1967 when he interrupted his lesson that day in order to say very disparaging things about the moral character of Dr. Martin Luther King. And it marked me. Marked me. It influenced my life in a negative way toward black people for years and probably till this day. So there's this parental piece. That's a causation. And, and teachers and other family members, these influencers in our, in our early years of life, they are primary. But there are other causes of it. For example, there's economic pressure is another. You may be able to keep your mild dislike for a particular group of people under wraps until it begins to affect you. Maybe it puts your employment at risk or your housing situation is influenced by it. And this might be enough pressure to bust the bigotry feelings loose inside of you. This is a, a staggering thing. I, I, to illustrate this way, it's just hard for me to say this, but between 1882 and 1930, researchers have, have studied this. Those 50 years between 1880 and 1930, Researchers found that there's a direct correlation between the price of cotton and the number of black lynchings of the time. When the price of cotton was high and there was low economic pressure, the number of lynchings went down. When the price of cotton went down and economic pressure went up, the number of lynchings went up. Staggering. So economic pressure can cause it. Another source is what sociologists call pressures of conformity. Now, you have to listen to this. This is social pressure. 
Every culture, the experts say, develop over time language and culture and custom and folklore stories that inevitably lead to typecasting of certain groups of people in society. And this typecasting eventually leads to devaluing certain types of people. For example, uh, here's a quiz. Name the ethnicity of the leaders of organized crime in this country. Who are they? They're the Italians, right? Hey, the Italians. Now, here's the question. Are all Italians connected to the mob? And the answer, of course, is no. Of course not. Here's another example. What is the color of the best athletes in the NBA? Well, they're black, aren't they? So the question, do we sometimes reduce black people to the level of their athletic prowess? The answer is, yeah, we tend to do that. Do you, do you see this typecasting? And, and, it, and it can easily form in your opinion. So social scientists suggest that if bias does not originate from your parents, your family, your teachers, etc., then there's a level of bias that each society will actually impress on you, and many of us conform to it, and we're not even aware of it. It just happens by living in a particular society. And then under the right circumstances and with the right personalities involved, all hell can break loose, as we are seeing in contemporary times. So there's the early life influencers, there are economic pressure points, there are social constructs that cause racial and bigoted attitudes and behaviors. And then the last piece is what we might say human corruption or what the Bible would describe as sin. At some point, this begins to have another dimension to it, kind of a deeper meaning, a level of evil that can't really be explained in sociological terms. And if that's your intuition, then you're right. In racism, there is the unmistakable stench of sin. It's none other than the evidence of human depravity, that southbound gravitational pull inside every one of us that seeks to label and exclude and demean certain groups of people for the sheer satisfaction of having the power to do it. And it's it's resident in us. There's something inside of us that wants to be superior It wants to be big and strong and smart and in, uh, making other people out and small and weak and different. Uh, One of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, uh, describes it as the inner ring, or in our vernacular, we might say the inner circle. We want to be in the inner circle. He exposes man's desire to make himself and his approved list of friends into an exclusive club that derives a sick and sinful kind of pleasure just by being able to keep other people out and other people down. Years ago, uh, on an international flight, I got bumped up to first class. It was a good day. Usually, of course, when we fly internationally, we fly in coach back in the cattle car, uh, scrunched up. I have to assume one-third my actual size for hours at a time, just fold up and get used to it. And I got bumped up to first class. Not business class, first class, baby. This was was a really good day. Now, first class is not just business class because in first class, this is where they give you facials and massages and and present to you table wines and and serve you imported beef. you, You get a flight attendant who is spectacular and her whole mission in life is just to make you happy. I was very happy. I was very happy. Do you know how long it took me to adjust to first class? 
I, I speculated it was somewhere between 36 and 30, 38 seconds. Like that. And we were mid-flight, and I had eaten this beautiful meal, and I had been catered to, and I was in reclined position. I had the little slippers on my feet, and I had just finished a movie, and I was going to doze off and take a little nap. And just as I was about asleep, some people from coach came through the curtain and walked into first class to use our restroom. Here's the first thought I had, just to tell you how corrupt I am. I wanted to, I wanted to signal the, the flight attendant and say, hey, you want to get the riffraff out of our section here, out of our restrooms? And that, that's terrible, isn't it? That's horrible. But you know what I'm talking about. That's the thing within each one of us that is just plain bad, maybe even evil. There's something within each of us that wants us to be in the inner circle, once we're in, we want other people out. And not just out, but pressed down. We want to stay in the strong and the powerful and the privileged spot. So in the final analysis, what causes bigotry is the sin that is in us. The sin in you. The sin in me. I want you to think about that. Well, finally, what's the cure? And as I mentioned, we're not going to cure racism any time soon, and certainly not easily in our culture. But there are a couple of things that are practical that you can do and I can do to be better around this subject. Let me frame it this way. Something's going to have to happen to our hearts, and something's going to have to happen to our hands in order to, to be less bigoted and biased in our world. Let's talk about our heart for just a moment. The New Testament's clear. God is no respecter of persons, that he is utterly, totally, and completely unaffected by a human being's color or ethnicity. God makes no acknowledgement or reference to that in any way. And in fact, the diversity of it all seems to be a delight to God. God must love diversity because he sure has made a bunch of different people. Red and yellow, black and white, remember the children's song in Sunday school, Bible school? Red and yellow, black and white, all of us are precious in his sight. John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So remember, every human being is a person made in the image and likeness of God, a person for whom Jesus Christ gave his life, a potential brother or sister in the family of God, a person who has a heart, has a name, has a story, has a future. Every person. You have never locked eyes with another human being that does not matter to God. You have never laid eyes on another person who is not the image bearer of the God you claim to know and love and worship. You have never shook hands or elbow bumped or fist bumped with another person who Christ did not die for. Every person you meet has value, has worth, has dignity in the eyes of God. Amen? It's true. It is absolutely true. We want to believe what's true. Something has happened to us. And so, therefore, something needs to happen to us at the level of our heart. Let me ask you, has it happened to yours? Have you noticed a difference? Do you see people differently? 
Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. I want to put this on the screen for you. If a man claims to love God but hates his brother, no. So here's the translation. When you open your heart up to God and you are filled with the love of God, his son, the love of Christ, when you have had that heart renewal, when you've been born again, when you become a Christian, then your heart will be softened. It will be melted. It will be cleansed. It will be purified in the love of Christ. The, the instinct, the intuition toward other people now is to love them. This is why Jesus came, you understand, to reveal the Father so that we could get a glimpse on who God really is. If there's anything that you believe to be true about God that you don't find in Jesus Christ, you should be suspicious of that thing you believe about God. Jesus came. There, there are people, there are voices in our culture right now, you know, we're pulling down statues for various reasons. And one guy actually suggested that statues of Jesus that are depicted uh, with, with uh, characteristics of a, of a European face should be pulled down because Jesus wasn't a white guy with blue eyes and blonde hair. So those statues that depict him as a Caucasian European, we ought to pull them down. Well, on one hand, a person's got a, got a point because there is a 99.9998% chance that Jesus was not a white guy with blue eyes and blonde hair. He was, he was a Middle Eastern Jew. And there's a high likelihood that Jesus' physical appearance was olive skin, dark hair, and brown eyes. Okay, but that's not actually the point, is it? His ethnicity. The point is that God became a man. It doesn't matter if he's red, yellow, black, or white. The good news is that he's revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ, that God put on an earth suit so that we could understand who God is and how much he loves us. And so here we are with this wonderful opportunity. When the Holy Spirit takes up residency in your life, the first fruit that he produces in your life is the fruit of love. Some preacher's been talking about the fruit of the Spirit recently. And the first on the list is love. So if your heart has been changed, then you're going to see people differently. So something has to happen to our hearts, and then something has to happen to our hands. And by that, I mean we need to build genuine, authentic relationships. There is no substitute for immersing yourself in another culture through the building of friendships. Authentic, genuine, careful relationships. Ethnic and racial barriers always begin to crumble the day each of us decides to build a sincere cross-racial friendship either at school or at work or at church or in the neighborhood. When we have a genuine friendship building, love and trust will grow and hearts will be knit together. Many years ago now, um, it was announced by our local government that we're going to have to close down because of austerity measures in the city government. Uh, The three community centers that the city owned and operated and these three centers, two of which operate in African-American neighborhoods and a third in a lower-middle-class white neighborhood, they had important services to the neighborhoods. And when I read this in the paper originally, I, I was serving here at Union Chapel, and we were on our campus here in this location, and so I'm a white guy out in the suburbs, you know, just doing my thing, and I see this trouble in the, in the inner city, and I just thought, well, that's not good. That's not right. And I made this mistake. I prayed about it. Be careful. Be careful about that. I'm always careful about what I pray about. (laughs) Be 
because you never know what God's going to ask you to do. But I made the mistake of, God, that's not right. You know, those sinners are important. God said, why don't you do something about it? I said, what do you mean? Why don't you go down there and do something about it? I said, look, God, I don't even drive my car through those neighborhoods, let alone drive my car and park there and get out. And God just put his hand in the middle of my back and pushed me right into that. And there I went. And for many, many years, uh, I invested myself. I just made a statement about there is no substitute for exposure to another culture. And I exposed myself intentionally to another culture. And I built relationships, meaningful relationships, with persons different than myself. And those relationships sustain to this day. Let me just conclude with this. I've never said this out loud, but I want to say it in the context of this message this weekend. The highest honor that I have ever received and the highest honor that I anticipate ever receiving in the context of pastoral ministry came from the African-American community here in in Muncie, Indiana, the year that I was invited to be the keynote speaker at the Martin Luther King Jr. worship celebration. I am to date the only white guy in the history of Muncie, Indiana who has been invited to keynote that critically important celebration of the legacy of Dr. King and the worship of God. At some point along the way, friends, the steps we need to take include a change of heart, attitude, and intentional investment in seeking to understand and build relationships. It's in that context that these barriers start to go away. Step by step, we can make a difference if we'll evaluate carefully our own hearts and ask the question, am I willing to go places that may be uncomfortable, may be difficult, may be hard, but necessary to bridge the divide? God, give us ears to hear. Let's pause and pray. Lord, we thank you today for your word, for the opportunity to hear these things, though sometimes difficult and painful. So today, simply, I pray, Father in heaven, please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, cause the values and the memories and the lessons of this sermon to linger in the hearts of your people. For Christ's sake, I pray. Amen.